This episode is called Harbinger of the Subterranean City. The rumbling emanating from above the surface had kept young Alex and his parents up all night. One could not help but spend day and night wondering what the source of such a tremendous noise could be. And so they all did. Every single person occupying the labyrinth of streets and houses that had been carved out of rock deep in the ground. Those people who had spent 15 years deliberately sectioned off from the conflict and misdeeds of above could not prevent their thoughts from lingering on that sound. Those of the younger generation, who had not lived in the underground city since its settlement like the older generation, had no idea of the importance of this event, as they did not realise that it had been the first time that the now great city had been reminded of its origins. Alex sat at the dining room table, carved out of marble. He stared at his yams. I don't want yams! He folded his arms in order to accentuate the finality of the decision he had just made. His mother, Andressa, tended to the situation as Margon, his father, sat reading an old leather-bound book the other two did not recognise. Alex, she began. What is wrong with your yams? They are not mushrooms, and I want mushrooms, he explained, with the gravitas of one with total authority of the situation. But sweetie, explained Andressa, the mushrooms we have are all in the freezer. They're all cold, you can't eat them. Then microwave them, Alex spat. Andressa smiled at the mispronunciation, though she was not entirely sure of how to proceed. Eat your yams, Alex, she concluded. Alex shook his head. If you eat your yams, Margan diverted his attention away from the book in order to provide some perhaps unneeded assistance. If you eat your yams, Alex, you grow up to be big and strong like the, uh, he scraped around his brain. Like the excavator or the drill man. Margan smiled inwardly. He knew that he had won. He had done the job. Alex looked down at the steaming yams and ate them dutifully. With this conflict resolved, Andressa returned to making herself a morning drink. Boiling tea, which she was quite fond of, and once she had poured her own, she brought one over to Margon, who with a wave of his hand indicated that she must keep the mug away from the delicate book. She set it down away from the gentle volume, but not out of arm's reach. This little exchange allowed the book to become the centre of attention at the table, and so Andressa inquired into its origins. Where'd you get that book from? It looks like it's made out of leather. Margan met the gaze of his wife. It is indeed leather, he explained. His hands felt their way around the cover as he said so. You'd be hard pressed to find one like it anywhere else in the whole city. In the entire world even. Well, what is it? 
It's the first edition of the first book that Arthur Molman ever wrote. Who's Arthur Molman? Alex attempted to say through a mouthful of yams. Arthur Molman was the man who brought us all down here, Margon explained. Well, at least that's what he would like us all to believe, he laughed. His fingers whisked through the pages. You would hardly believe he said most of the stuff he said, you'd wonder why anyone would ever have followed him down here if they had read his work, but no one ever did, you know. Only his critics read his work, and how else would they criticise him? Those who supported his views knew little of him personally, only of a handful of the ideas he came up with, or so he claimed he came up with, so few of his followers ever read any of his work. Perhaps he would be glad to know that no one had read any of his work had he lived long enough to realise the foolishness of all of his words. Completely up himself, like most writers. He continued to scour through the book, and then his eyes lit up as he found what he had been looking for. Ah, he announced, listen to this. <clears throat> he raised his index finger as he opened his mouth to speak, but he was cut short by that sound again. He lowered his index finger, shutting the book. What is that noise? Alex asked. It was the same question on his parents' mind, though they knew it was not their business. And the answer was not likely worth their time. We don't need to worry about it, Andressa told Alex, pretending it was of no interest to her. Because we're completely safe down here. Nothing can hurt us when we're 10 kilometers below the Earth's surface. That's very far, Alex. Besides, it might just be some drilling, or maybe some sort of earthquake. Margan intercepted. It couldn't be an earthquake, that's physically impossible. The colony was built in the centre of the Australian desert for a reason, Andressa. No tectonic plates disagree with one another, means our roofs don't collapse and cross us all in our sleep. Alex's eyes became a bit glassy. Drilling it is then. Andressa said quickly, shooting Marg on a look that said, Do not frighten our child like that. But it doesn't matter, she shrugged. Turning her eyes to the boiled water steaming beneath her chin. We're mole people. We don't need to worry about it. But they did exactly that. It was 100 MT, that stands for mole time, on the third day of the cycle meaning that all three members of the household had the next 23 hours free until they had to go back to work and school, accordingly. They all sat in the living room, a luxurious space surrounded by walls of such smoothly cut stone that one might easily mistake it for an apartment in a sky-high complex were it not for the complete absence of any natural light. Alex read on the floor while his father continued to browse through Molman's volume in his seat. There was a knock on the door at 200 MT as Tampern, a friend of Andres, joined them in the living room. The holidays always drag a bit, don't they? Tampern began, with Alex out of earshot as he sat in the corner reading some comic books. They certainly do. Andres could sympathise. Some days there's so little to do, and you know what kids are like when they're stuck at home all day. They just get bored. Tampern gave an mmm in agreement. Oh, if I don't get Chonyan out of the house once a cycle, he loses it. 
gets claustrophobic, he'll basically scream at us to let him go somewhere. Mm, that's not Alex. It's hard to know what he wants. Some days I have no idea what's going on in there. Tampone sipped from the mug that had appeared in front of her. Speaking of which, she took another long sip, and as she did, she pointed a finger to the ceiling. And with that, Andres and Margon had been permitted to talk about the thing that they were so eagerly awaiting her to bring it up. What on earth is it? Andres whispered, mostly for a motive effect than to make an, an effort to conceal their discussion. I will reiterate that there was over 10 kilometers of rock, dirt, and other crap, ensuring that anyone on the surface was definitely out of earshot while they gossiped about them, most definitely. Heads were shaken, both vertically and horizontally, and thoughts exchanged as the three discussed theories. It must have had something to do with that Nixon. He's probably dead by now. Perhaps aliens have finally invaded like we always knew they would. You're missing the most likely possibility. They're drilling down towards us. They couldn't be looking for us. Why, they don't even know that we're here, right? You're right. Say they happen upon us purely by accident. Unless they've mined out most of the Earth in the last 15 years. That's highly unlikely. They could have tracked us down. Or, I suppose, it is sacred land after all. I'm not sure if they would be allowed to excavate in the Australian desert anyway. That's hardly ever stopped them before. Oh, you know it's unreasonable. I know, but it's more likely than a close encounter with the third kind. Maybe they're being bombed. Who would be at war with Australia? That's the charm of living in such a little brother nation. No one's picking on you. They'll bomb America if they have a problem with the West. Who's they? You think I know? At this point, the conversation ceased. Finally, Margan threw into the discussion, not looking up from his book in doing so. What does it matter? At the end of the day, they're not going to hurt us. Nothing's going to change around these parts, so what do we care? Andres nodded admittingly, but Tampern spoke up. You don't have the least bit of interest what's going on up there? Nope. He turned a page. How does it help us in any way to know what's happening in that cesspool? Focus on what's important, I say. His eyes fell back into the methodic act of reading the lined pages, perhaps searching for something in between. Tampern was perplexed. You act like you've spent all of your waking days down here. My entire adult life, he confirmed. It doesn't matter to you what's happening up there to the people we knew that didn't come with us? It's been over a decade, Tampern. I would barely recognize the bastards anyway. You grew up with them. Why, do, do, you, rem do you remember Antol? Yes, I, I do remember Antol. His eyes remained on the page, but the mechanical movement of the eyes had ceased. You loved them. You loved Antol. Surely you worry what has become of them. 
We only went to high school together, Tampone. Everyone drifts apart after high school, whether they bury themselves under tons of dirt and rubble or not. I'd have the same amount of limited interactions with those people that I knew in high school if I lived in the next town over, as I do right here, he pointed. Alex had since retreated to the bedroom as the temperature of the discussion had risen above what he would deem comfortable. Additionally, he did not care at all for politics, and was more interested in the current issue that Drillman had got himself into. Besides, I have you two, right? Margan looked at his loving wife along with his old friend. They were quiet. It's just that Andres's voice dripped with hypothetical misery. To think what could have happened to them. She looked to the carpet. I thought we had agreed it was drills, Margan replied. I thought we had agreed that you didn't care. Andres had something like tears in her eyes, and so when she spoke her voice came out as something between a sob and a whisper. Tampone was unsure what to say. Everyone checked the time, not all at once, but within the next few minutes they each looked for the best excuse to be somewhere else. It was the most delightful coincidence that Tampone needed to get home to help her husband with his shopping, you know what he's like at the same time that Andres needed to go into the far eastern cabin to find Alex a new pair of socks. Margan made no excuse and continued to read his book, content with the silence that had fallen in the home. That night, they all slept as normal. Another sound did not disrupt their slumber. The next morning, regular life resumed, and a strange consensus had been reached that the noise that they had heard above them would never be mentioned again. This was easy enough, for as Alex grew into adulthood, the memory of the all-powerful noise grew so abstract that by the time that he had graduated from his education at the age of 20 and had begun to move his life, way further out into the now ever-twisting and turning world of the stone hive, it was as unfamiliar to him as the surface world that he had never even visited. Every profession was treated with a similar disdain in the hive, and so Alex did not find himself particularly pleased or displeased that after only five years he had found himself managing one of the many backup power generators. His father had always told him that in the previous world he had worked as a tailor and that he would mend the suits of some of the biggest politicians. He was good and he was accountable, he said. The majority of them were nice to him and would converse with him, whether it came naturally or not. It was enough that he had never believed in anything akin to that great chain of being that was itself the reason that people like him were not in a position of power such as those men. He sewed happily, knowing that he was more than capable. Even once he had come down here with his mother, he had never even asked for more. It was only when technology developed beyond the need for a human tailor that Margan had finally retired, and it just so happened that he would die of old age the very next year. 
Alex had always held similar beliefs, although he could never make the connection that he had inherited them from his father, and so when he found himself at work, he was at ease. If you subtract the anxiety of inferiority from one's mood, the longer shifts get significantly shorter, and for the most part that was the hardest part of the job. To wait. It was a job that even Homer Simpson could do, perhaps he was just ahead of his time after all. Alex sat in a concrete office each day, in a very deep chair, glancing at a blue screen sat in front of him every once in a while. He made this regular check, scheduled this expedition of his eyes up from a book to the screen, not out of necessity, but purely because he could not help but feel bad if he did not satisfy the job description each and every day. And so, he did. Alright, so a bit of lore for you. All humans had graduated from that traditional working class at this point. The intense labour that had been assigned to the proletariat in the past was now assigned to the offspring of humanity. The machines were advanced enough to do anything a mind-numbing job could throw at a person, and so the human workforce was restructured on this premise. People would sit and survey the machines as they went about, doing practically nothing as they collected the profit made by machines doing work ten times as effectively than any human could ever do it. An entire race enslaved by another, the machines greatly outnumbering their overseers. He sat and did very little all day, as he had been told the riches did on the surface long ago. There would never be any mistakes, any, m any problems, or any uprising. He knew that to be true. But there had to be someone there just to make sure, and so he got paid to sit and watch robots manufacture power, and use that power to reproduce something akin to the von Neumann machines dreamt up by wispy science fiction writers of a time recently forgotten. Alex didn't exactly spin around in his seat, he was perfectly vacant as his feet took turns applying pressure to the synthetic carpet beneath him, his seat swiveling left to right, left to right, left to right. He was trying to figure out a murder mystery novel in his head. The Hive was not unacquainted with crime and there had never been a better way to capitalise on the imperfections of society than by writing about them. He looked at his watch. Ten hundred. He would leave in about an hour, and when he arrived home at 10.30, he would relax by doing something that was more mentally and physically demanding than his day job, which was reading. He had read about how rampant alcoholism had been on the surface for over a millennia, and while he was certainly glad that the mole people had left spirits up on the surface, he had decided that there were things just as bad as binge drinking, such as doing nothing with oneself and listening only to radio broadcasts all day. Even reading had its downsides, but here he was. Sitting in a firm circular seat in the corner of his living room, as his father had once done as he read the Excavator comics on the floor. He wondered if they were actually any good. He feared returning to them, worrying that they would be nowhere near as good as he recalled. 
Some things are best left in the past. He did not find the irony in opening a book of ancient Greek history after having reached this conclusion. The Greeks, particularly the Athenians and the Spartans, had taken his fancy for quite a while. Their religion, their systems of governing, they were all fascinating. He was glad that, while the media industry of the Hive was so insistent on the horrible conditions of the above world to such a propagandistic level that it was ever so slightly unsettling, they were generous in providing the histories. He had been reading a lot about the Athenians of late and decided to read of the Spartans. He played with a switch on the wall to the left of his seat and a light dimmed. It was slightly yellow, matching the tinge of the old paper. Chapter 12 The Helot Revolt In the year 464 BCE, an earthquake was said to have occurred along the Sparta Fault. The area in which Sparta was located has been described by seismologists as the Hellenic Arc, a region highly susceptible to earthquakes as a result of conflict between the two tectonic plates beneath the land, with the African plate struggling as it was held beneath the Aegean Sea Plate. While the exact location of the epicenter of this event can never be properly agreed upon, the estimated death toll as a result of the tremor has been placed as high as 20,000. It is likely that this seismic event would have been long forgotten were it not for the impact on the Spartan city and subsequently its impact on Greek history in particular. Perhaps the most notable writers on the earthquake, none contemporary to the event, were Pausanias, Plutarch, Strabo, and Thucydides, who discussed these seismic events due not to an avid interest in earthquakes in general, but because the uprising of the Helots in the same year came as a direct result. While the Spartans had normally kept the Helots under strictures that ensured a rebellion could not occur, with the Spartans spending a large amount of their time working in order to ensure any sort of mutiny could be suppressed, the rebellion was so great that the Spartans requested assistance from the Athenian rivals, although they later turned back reinforcements sent by the neighbouring polis. This event has been cited many times because of this excursion made by the apparently autogethonic people as it has been seen to indicate the strange relationship between the two cities only a few decades prior to the First Peloponnesian War and has been recognised as a key event in the lead up to the conflict. Well. Alex had planned to continue further into the chapter, but his eyes lingered on the final paragraph. Autochthonic. It was a word that he had not yet encountered in his endeavours into the collection of histories. A conjunction, two words, likely both of Latin origin. Autochthonic. He knew the first one. At least, he knew what it would mean in certain contexts, but not this one. What was Chthonic? He had no other book that mentioned it, except one maybe. He pulled out the rather thorough edition of the Molian Dictionary and guided himself towards the section in which he expected to find the word. His attempt fell short. Between Chrysography and Chu, there was nothing. Curious. He could find that word, 
in the same section of the dictionary. He shot the book, a word that was perhaps forever lost to his people. The databases that existed within the libraries at the heart of the hive were only filled with fragments of information, a lot of which could not be properly understood by the best historians, as the definitions of particular words had been lost. Those settlers that had been certain to bring down as much information necessary to ensure the continuing progress of scientific endeavours below the ground, in the hopes that their path would delineate from that of the destructive technologies of the world above. The works of Plato and the like were not seen as important in achieving this goal, and so the only historical writings he knew of were brought down by his late mother and father. It didn't matter, he reasoned. There were plenty of words that were relevant to the life of the average person in these deep caverns that he didn't even know. It didn't matter. And yet, it did. He passed the remainder of the night with a small jog around the wide paths of the inner city, before making it to the gym. He fell into bed some time later, at 1600. The next cycle, he found himself at work. The regularity of his routine resulted in a complete absence of any memory of his morning routine. He was simply dropped into his swivel chair in front of the monitor, and for the first time in that day, he had enough free time to feel bored. He sighed. He left his eyes looking at the monitor as he checked out. Autochthonic, he thought. His eyes had just begun to blur over when they were automatically snapped right back into focus as a result of a quick flash of movement in front of him. On the screen, an arbitrary value had changed significantly. While on a usual day the levels of all aspects of the technology, air pressure in area X, rotations per minute of part Y, product Z synthesized per second, were all monitored and regulated by internal machines and algorithms leading the numbers to dance on the screen as they jaunted up slightly only to sink down below the normal average. Something had gone wrong. Value LF1053 had dropped from a steady 100, jittering between 98 and 101, down to a stark 0. He had been here long enough that this fluctuation was as amusing as any novelty he could find back home. Technically, he didn't know if this was cause for much concern. As he waited for the number to flick back up to 100, he sought to figure out what LF1053 exactly was. Left foot? Unlikely. He was relieved that it was not his job to fix these sort of things, only to report them. It was a first. He felt his hand around the underneath of the desk and discovered the button that he had been instructed to press in such an emergency. He pressed down on it, although it sunk into the desk at such a slow rate that he wondered if he had held it down far enough for it to activate. The sound of a distant siren, a faint chirping, not at all like that of the bellowing maelstrom of blasting sirens and fire-red indicators that the term emergency normally suggested. The phone installed at his desk rang promptly, 
not too promptly, and he answered it with a matched enthusiasm. This is Production Surveillance Officer 7, he announced. The other person on the line spoke quickly, but without direction. Yes, hello, you have signalled an emergency? You may call it that, Alex said, returning his gaze to the screen to ensure that the issue had not yet resolved itself. Unfortunately, it had not. I was told to call this number if any of the details were irregular, and um, one of them is, just one. He read out the letters slowly, hoping they meant anything to the person on the other end. LF1053, he paused. Does that mean anything to you? Oh, I see, the woman confirmed on the other line. So there is a problem with the left foot of the machine? He raised his eyebrows at no one in particular. If that is what LF1053 is, the number value next to it jumped straight down to zero. It's usually at 100, so like... He had already measured the tone of the conversation, and so took a jab at some humour. Are we gonna die or something, or do you reckon we'll be alright? No, nothing like that. She hadn't appreciated it. It is only a minor issue. It will likely resolve itself within the next hour or so. And if it doesn't? If the number does not return to its usual level, press the emergency button again. And then you'll get to fixing it? No, we don't have the authority to fix it. That will come from elsewhere, likely from a service android. They know how to do it better than any of us. That would certainly take the effort out of machine maintenance. Well, yes, it, it certainly does. Okay, look, I'll, I'll let you go, and I'll give you another shout if it doesn't sort itself out after a short while. Give it up to half an hour, thank you very much, no worries. He hung up. This was the sort of thing he had been paid to do. For the first time in the five years that he had been employed at the generator, he felt like he was actually doing the job he was idly paid a wage so that one day he may actually do. He looked at the monitor with a great sense of purpose that he had not felt in a great while, and such a sense of purpose felt foreign in such an occupation. He felt to be meaningless as this was. As a dull yet not unexpected anticlimax, he remained in his seat for the entirety of the 30 minutes in which he waited, with an obligatory bated breath. After the time had passed, he pressed the button again. Rather, he swung his closed fist into it, adding dramatic zeal to the moment. The sirens again, this time followed by more after a few minutes. The phone rang slightly sooner than it had before. Alex had not had the time to look at the time before it started. It is still not reset? The same woman began. Nah, still the same. Is there anything I can do? Not really. If the number returns to normal, please call this number. She gave him a number and he typed it out in an empty file. Got it. So you're going to send the android? Yes, that is the plan. Is there a chance that won't work? It likely will. These things do not happen often, so the androids haven't done their jobs frequently enough to have failed yet. I see. Have you... Alex's voice was buried underneath a horrible rumble, 
cutting through the concrete walls and echoing through the hallways with a metallic tinge. The sound wasn't only alarming but terrifying on a deep, primal level. He couldn't hear himself think. His eyes darted to the monitor which still showed no signs of change. Was he to evacuate? He yelled down the phone which proved to be of no effect as he could not so much as hear the woman shouting on the other end in the slightest. He found himself standing bolt upright with the phone still in his hand and was about to shout out of the room when a booming click emanated from somewhere deep in the labyrinthian factory and just like that the noise ceased. He looked at the screen LF1053 99. For a moment, there was a potent silence. Hello? Hello? He could hear her exclaim from the receiver, even as he had dropped it into the ground. He picked it up quickly. Everything's okay. The number has reset. It's back to 90. It's back. What was that noise? We cannot be too sure. The machines take care of- What do you mean you don't know? Surely someone knows what to do when more than just- call in the maintenance droid, right? I'm not in charge of this, sir, she said from the other end. It has always fixed itself just as, as it has today. You do not need to worry. Return to your desk and continue as normal. She hung up promptly. The potent silence returned and he resumed his regular job of checking the time and then helping it move forward by taking his mind elsewhere. A cold feeling in his stomach conflicted with the warmth of his head, a headache from the horrific noise that he now realised he was lucky had not caused him permanent damage to his ears. He had never heard anything like it, not up close. For the very first time he thought about that day he had sat and read comic books as an unfathomable tremor emanated from above. It had been completely unknown to them, and just as well completely unimportant. They were out of harm's way, out of the area of impact for the misdeeds of the above world. He looked again at the time. He would leave soon. A deep dread bubbled in his stomach, a feeling that only started to bubble long after the event that had caused it. He had got himself out of his seat. The floor was out of order. He stood still and breathed deeply into his lungs for a few moments, and the concrete beneath him shifted back into its normal composure. For how long would it remain there? He could surely not tell. It was up to the machines to figure that one out.